Exodus 4. Exodus 4 is where we're going to be. To be truly powerless in a given situation, I would think would have to be one of the worst feelings in the world. Uh, I think I've told you before, but I was watching this documentary series on World War II, um, and uh, I finished it up, and the scenes that always get to me are the scenes of civilians in the midst of the battle, right? Um, they're caught in the middle of the fighting. You know, the, the Germans will hold one city and the Russians are coming in and the civilians are caught. It's their home and they're stuck. They have no weapons, no armor, no defenses. They are literally powerless to do anything about what is happening. They can't run. They can't get themselves out of the way of the advancing army. They're stuck with the occupying army. I mean, there's nothing they can do. They are powerless, no options. Now, on the flip side of that, power is an interesting thing because at the root of it, really what power is, it's the ability to act in a given situation and bring about change. You can do something about your circumstances. And so to be powerless, to lack power, is to be moved around, shuffled around by those who have power. It's to be influenced or acted upon by, by those who have more power than you. I think probably at some point during this pandemic, all of us have felt powerless. <laughs> there is nothing I can do about whatever is happening, right? And throughout the centuries, there have been many Christians, many, many Christians who have lacked the power or the ability to change their circumstances in any way. And I think that's one of the reasons that Christians cling so tightly to the idea and the scriptural truth that God is all powerful, that he is omnipotent. And it matters very much in our lives that even though we lack power and we do not have the ability to change our circumstances, we are out of options, we have a God who is never out of options. He's always powerful and he always has the ability to change circumstances at any moment in time. Here's a definition of God's power. Get past that introduction there. Uh, that a, a pastor from a long time ago wrote in a book about God's attributes. He said, the power of God is that ability and strength whereby he can bring to pass whatsoever he pleases, whatsoever his infinite wisdom may direct, and whatsoever the infinite purity of his will may resolve. As holiness is the beauty of all God's attributes, so power is that which gives life and action to all the perfections of the divine nature. Now we're talking about God's power this morning because there may be no other book in the Bible that puts God's raw power on display like the book of Exodus. You probably dispute that, but it is one of the best books to go to to see God's power on display and on display in magnificent ways. God has the ability to act, right? He has the strength the capability to do all of his holy will, and he is going to exercise his will and act in the book of Exodus. And that's true. 
And so we're going to talk about his power. We're going to get to that in just a minute in Exodus chapter 4. But if you remember, this whole section, as you saw here, is, a, is one introduction to God. And we're in the second part of that, which is the beginning of chapter 4. And so we're going to continue this. Let me remind you of what we saw last week, and then we're going to get to God's power put on display in Exodus chapter 4. And so last week we saw four foundational revelations of God's character. We're talking about the character of God here. This is a theophany, right? The burning bush and Moses' conversation with God is a theophany. God is coming and revealing himself to Moses so that then Moses can go and describe who God is and deliver the people out of Egypt. And so God is putting himself on display to Moses and by extension to those of us who are reading this thousands of years later. And so four foundational revelations of God's character that introduce him to us. And the first one of these in verses 1 to 6 of chapter 3 is that he is the holy God of the patriarchs. So after 40 years in Midian, working as a shepherd for his father-in-law, Moses is living in exile from his native people, the Israelites, and from his homeland, the only country he had ever known up to that point, Egypt. So he's out living as an exile, and he encounters God at the burning bush on Mount Horeb, Mount Sinai, the mountain of God. And so God there begins to reveal himself to Moses. He describes who he is, and the first thing he says is, I am holy. Moses, take off your sandals, because I'm so holy that the ground around me, around this manifestation of my presence in the bush, has become holy. And holiness means that God cannot be casually approached by sinful people. And so we begin to learn that about God here at the burning bush incident. But this holy God is not some new God. Even though we're being introduced to his holiness really for the first time in Scripture in Exodus 3, he's the same God that he has always been. He is the God of the covenant with the patriarchs. He's the God who promised to Abraham, to Isaac, and to Jacob that he would bring their descendants into a land where it would be flowing with milk and honey, and he would make them a people who would bless the entire world. And so he made that covenant with, with them, and he is going to be faithful to that covenant, and he reminds Moses of that here. And now, in order to be faithful to that covenant, he is going to act on behalf of his people, and his actions will reveal who he is to us. And this is the second part. His actions showcase, they put on display his character. You don't just learn about God's character by dissecting a singular name that he gives. You can learn about his character from that, but really, you have to see him in action. And so at this point, after the burning bush um, experience starts and God introduces himself to Moses, now he begins to explain what his plans are for Israel. And he's going to use Moses to, to bring Israel out of Egypt. And Moses begins to ask questions of God in chapter 3 and verse 11. And that, you'll see, continues today all the way through chapter 4 and verse 17. Sort of this back and forth conversation that we get to listen in on. And so in verse 13 of chapter 3, if you'll look down there, Moses asked this question. Then Moses said to God, if I come to the people of Israel and say to them, the God of your fathers has sent me to you, and they ask me, what is his name? What shall I say to them? 
He wants to know who God is. How is he to be defined? What sort of a God is he? And God gives Moses a three-part answer, right? Remember this? We typically read, I am who I am, as the only answer that God gives. But God gives this answer in three parts. Verse 14, God said to Moses, I am who I am. And, verse 14, he said, say this to the people of Israel. I am has sent me to you. God also said, verse 15, to Moses. And then he continues on all the way to the end of chapter 3. And so if you put all of these three answers together, what you have is God saying, I am who I am. I will always act consistent with my character. I'm the same God I've always been, and I will always be that God. And so the question is, well, what sort of God is that? And then he begins to unfold that. He is the God who is going to deliver Israel. He's sending a deliverer, Moses, to them. And he's the same God that he's always been to the patriarchs. And he's going to unfold that in the rest of the book. As as you see, verses 16 through 22, God basically tells Moses what he's going to do in the next few chapters in Exodus. Moses is going to go to Egypt and the people are going to believe him and he's going to bring great wonders and they're going to leave Egypt with a great amount of plunder and spoil that the people are going to give them. And so what God is saying is, I'm consistent with my nature. How will you know my character and my nature? I'm going to show it to you. And I'm going to show you that I am a God who delivers and is faithful to his promises. And I'm going to put all of that on display in the exodus from Egypt. And so now you get past that wonderful description of who God is and what he's going to do. And Moses asks another question to begin chapter 4. This is our third foundational revelation. He powerfully rules over all. This is in chapter 4, verses 1 to 9. So Moses has asked two questions so far. And not to be too hard on Moses, but these are pretty legitimate questions, right? I mean, it's, it's fair for him to ask these things of the Lord, and God treats it that way. And so I don't know that he's necessarily doubting that God is going to do what he says, But he asks this third question because he's wondering whether the Israelites are going to believe him. I mean, he's like, I can go, but ultimately I need them to believe that you are going to deliver them. And so he asks this third question here in verse 1. Then Moses answered, but behold, they will not believe me or listen to my voice. For they will say, the Lord did not appear to you. And so God very graciously answers this by giving Moses three signs to help him. Now, it's pretty unusual for God to do this sort of thing, to give signs like this to someone. And it's important for us to keep in mind as we look at these signs that these are not cheap tricks. These are not random gimmicks that are magical just to show that God can do something. These signs are meant to foster belief in God's power, specifically his power over Egypt. Now notice the concern of Moses here in verse 1. They will not believe me. Notice what God says in verse 5. 
He's going to do this, that they may believe, right? So these are signs, much like the signs that Jesus gives in the Gospel of John, so that you may believe. And so these are specifically given to foster belief or faith in God's power. And so these signs are meant to confirm God's ability, not just his ability in general, but specifically his ability to deliver the Israelites. And it's specifically given to authenticate Moses as the one who will be God's messenger and will deliver them. And so these are not random signs. Like, have you ever read this and thought, why these actions? Why the snake? Why leprosy? Why the Nile River turning into blood? These are not randomly chosen signs. God did not tell Moses to levitate. He did not have Moses do a card trick. (laughs) He chose specific signs for a purpose. And each of these three signs speaks volumes about God's power overall, but his power over Egypt and his ability to be the deliverer over Egypt. Here's what I mean. Look at chapter 4 and verse 2. Notice where God directs Moses' attention. The Lord said to him, what is that in your hand? He said, a staff. Okay, Why is that important? Well, a staff was very important to someone at this time. Most staffs that people carried along were marked and identified that staff with that person. And so it was very important to them. They used it for a variety of things. But beyond its functional importance, throughout the book of Exodus, Moses' staff comes to represent God's power. And it is used as an extension of God's power. I mean, think about it. Later in the book of Exodus, what does Moses strike the Nile River with? His staff. It turns to blood. What does he strike the rock with? And fresh water comes out. It's his staff. In Exodus 17, Israel is in a fight against Amalek. And they win when Moses holds up his staff. Right? Now, look down at Exodus 4 and verse 17. When he finishes this whole section, he says to Moses, take in your hand this staff with which you shall do the signs. And so it's important that Moses has this with him. In fact, if you look down at chapter 4 and verse 20, look at what the staff is now called. Very end of that verse. And Moses took the staff of God in his hand. And so this staff is identified in this book with God's power. And the point is that God will use and will work through Moses and this staff in the signs that Moses does. And the signs will show Israel that Yahweh has authority over Egypt. Now let's look at each of these signs individually because I want to make this connection that these are not random for you. Look at verse 3. And he said about the staff, throw it on the ground. So he threw it on the ground and it became a serpent. And Moses ran from it. Now why? Why does it become a serpent? Well, Pharaoh most likely had a serpent on his crown that he wore. We've already seen in the book of Exodus that Pharaoh is acting like the seed of the serpent, is he not? He's trying to destroy the seed of the woman 
by having them thrown into the Nile River. And so there's an association already there with the serpent and with Pharaoh. Beyond that and beyond those sort of loose connections, I want you to see one example of how the prophets talk about Pharaoh. Exodus 29.3, speak and say, thus says the Lord God, behold, I am against you, Pharaoh, king of Egypt, the great serpent, dragon, that lies in the midst of his streams, that says, my Nile is my own, I made it for myself. And so this is not a random sign here that his staff would turn to a serpent because Pharaoh is identified as the dragon, the serpent, the representative of that old serpent who was in the garden, Satan. The one who's going to spread death and destruction and has already attempted to destroy God's people. And so this sign is not random. It is meant to show Moses that God even has power over the serpent's representative. You can see here Moses runs from the serpent in fear just like he fled Egypt back in chapter 2. In fear. And so what happens after he flees? Look at verse 4 and 5. But the Lord said to Moses, put out your hand and catch it by the tail. Not accidental. So he put out his hand and caught it, and it became a staff in his hand. And here's why all of that happened. That they may believe that the Lord, the God of their fathers, the God of Abraham, the God of Isaac, and the God of Jacob has appeared to you. And so rather than running from the serpent in fear, Moses, through God's power, will tame the serpent. And God's people will see exactly who God is. He's the deliverer who has appeared to Moses and has authority over Pharaoh and over the people of Egypt. Now let's look at the second sign here, verse 6. Again, the Lord said to him, put your hand inside your cloak. And he put his hand inside his cloak. And when he took it out, behold, his hand was leprous like snow. Now you hear and I hear the word leprosy and we think of that disease where your fingers start to lose feeling and eventually they fall off, your toes, your nose, all of this stuff. And there's a modern equivalent to that, which is called Hansen's disease. It's fairly rare in the world today, and it is curable. But this word in Scripture can actually mean a number of different diseases. It's not always talking about Hansen's disease. There are any number of skin maladies or diseases that this could be reflecting. It's sort of a broad category for disease. The point here is that whatever happened to his hand in this moment, it changed from being whole to being diseased, and then it changes back again. Now, why is this important? Well, in the ancient world, there was a very strong connection between disease and the wrath or the judgment of the gods. And so many of the religious ceremonies that they would participate in were meant to appease the gods so that they would bring healing because it was believed that the gods had authority over disease and to bring healing. And so this would have certainly been true of the Egyptians and of their gods. And so they would offer sacrifices and they would pray to them in order to heal diseases. It was a major part of what they did. And so when God does this here, it's not accidental that disease is involved. 
And so what he's showing here is that he has the absolute authority and the absolute power over disease. And this would have been shocking to anyone in this culture who watched this happen in front of their eyes. This was not a cheap trick. It was an intentional sign to show them that this God is the God who has true authority and true power over the other gods. He's a God who can cause disease and who can make one whole again. Look at verses 7 and 8. Then God said, put your hand back inside your cloak. So he put his hand back inside his cloak, and when he took it out, behold, it was restored like the rest of his flesh. Finally, there's a third sign. This one is foretold, but this one is not actually demonstrated. And I think for you, it will be quite easy to see why this is not a random miracle that is given here. Look at verse 8. If they will not believe you, God said, or listen to the first sign, they may believe the latter sign. If they will not listen, even not, listen, not believe even these two signs or listen to your voice, you shall take some water from the Nile and pour it on the dry ground. The water that you shall take from the Nile will become blood on the dry ground. Now, this one is clearly talking about God's authority over all of the Egyptian gods. I mean, we've talked before about how when Pharaoh told the people of Egypt to throw the Hebrew children, the, the baby boys, into the Nile River, what they were essentially saying was, you are making a sacrifice to the God of the Nile River, the one who brings flourishing and fertility and food into our lives, the, the God of life and the God of death. And so in many ways, that would have been a religious ritual for them to offer sacrifice to this God. And so what God is telling Moses here is, look, by taking this water out of the Nile River, by approaching their God in this way, taking it out and dumping it on the ground, and it will turn to blood, God is showing his power and his authority over the Nile River, over the God of the Nile River, and ultimately over all of Egypt. And so all three of these signs are not randomly chosen, but they would demonstrate to Israel and to the people that saw them that God has the power over Egypt. Yes, he's all-powerful. Yes, he can do things like that. But in their case, this is the God who would deliver them from Egypt, and he has the ability to do that. Now, here's the lesson for you and I. We know God's powerful. Intellectually, we know that. And they saw these signs come before them, as you will see later in chapter 4. Moses performed these signs. They were most likely signs that he could do over and over again for every group of Israelites that he encountered in order to demonstrate God's authority and power to them. But here's the lesson for us and for them in this passage, and we've already hinted at this. If you look at verse 1, what is Moses' concern? That they won't believe him. And then verse 5, God says that he's given these signs so that they can believe and then in verse 8, he says again, they may believe the latter sign, but in verse 9, if they will not believe even these two signs, he gives them a third one. And so the whole purpose of these signs and the point of this is that God is powerful, but his power must be met with active faith. What's our response to God's power? It's trust in him. It's faith in him. We often feel powerless and weak. And we feel we have no ability to control things 
or to change our circumstances. And yet, we have a God who is all-powerful, has absolute control and authority. He moves things around like a pawn on a chessboard. And he has demonstrated his power over and over again. And so our response and Israel's response here over and over again is to relax in that power and to trust him. And when you really trust his power, then you act in response. You act in faith. You obey his word. You do what he asks of of you because you believe him and you trust him. Rest in his power, and he will work for your good. That's what he promises, and that's the lesson that he's giving here. And that leads us to our fourth foundational revelation of God's character. He graciously, amazingly uses us to accomplish his purposes. This is the type of God that he is. He does it over and over again in Scripture. And this is in verses 10 through 17. So even after these demonstrations, these these three or these two with the promise of a third, rather shocking demonstrations where a staff has become a serpent and Moses has to reach out and grab it by the tail, and after his hand becomes diseased and then made whole again, Moses brings up another concern. Verse 10, but Moses said to the Lord, oh my Lord, I am not eloquent, either in the past or since you have spoken to your servant but I am slow of speech and of tongue. Now the question here is, what is Moses actually getting at? A lot of people have said that he has some sort of speech defect, maybe from birth, maybe he stutters. Who knows what it is? Maybe he's here just saying that he's nervous about public speaking, which, as I understand it, is the thing that people fear the most. It's like the biggest fear that people have, public speaking. Now, I will say the rest of the Pentateuch does not, it does not seem like Moses has a speech defect. Doesn't seem like he has trouble communicating because over and over again throughout Exodus, he does communicate and does it rather effectively and rather clearly. But we really don't know for sure. Regardless of what he's getting at here and what his issue is, God's response is the same. Look at verse 11. Then the Lord said to him, who has made man's mouth? Who makes him mute or deaf or seeing or blind? Is it not I, the Lord? Now, therefore, go, and I will be with your mouth and teach you what you shall speak. And here's the beauty of this passage, verses 11 and 12. God made Moses exactly the way he wanted him. He designed him to have the exact qualities that he would have. If Moses had a speech issue, God made him that way. If he didn't and he was just nervous about public speaking, God made him that way. All the positives and negatives, God put Moses together in the way that he wanted him. And that same thing is true of you and I. Why am I bow-legged with a crooked nose? Well, my dad, that's part of it, but... (laughs) God designed me that way. Why do you have the particular gifts that you have? The abilities, the talents. Yes, you've worked hard in certain areas, I know. 
And that's good. We all have to develop those talents and to work on those gifts and praise the Lord for that. But who initially gave you the desire and the capacity to grow in those areas? Who made your mouth and your eyes? Who gave you the gifts that he gave you? It's God. God gave you those gifts, and ultimately, he will be the one who empowers you to use those gifts. Verse 12, again. Now, therefore, go, and I will be with your mouth and teach you what you shall speak. Now, up until this point, Moses' questions have been pretty reasonable, I think. It makes sense that he would ask all of these things. Maybe in verse 10, It's starting to get a little exasperating, right, as we're reading through this, like, oh, come on, Moses. You got every excuse in the book, right? But up until this point, he hasn't really tried to reject God's command and commission of him. But now that that changes a little bit in verse 13. Look there. But he said, oh, my Lord, please send someone else. Now, this This is a direct attempt to get out of this. And in Scripture, there's only one other prophet who tried to get out of God's call and commission. And Jonah, and it did not go very well for him. (laughs) So this is not a good idea for Moses to go down this road, even though that would happen much later. God is not pleased with this. Verse 14, then the anger of the Lord was kindled against Moses. But I want you to notice here, even as God is rightly angry with Moses for trying to get out of this, notice what God does. He gives Moses a very gracious gift to help him along the way. Sending Aaron to Moses is not a reaction of frustration and of anger. It's a reaction of grace and kindness to Moses, even as God is angry with him. He's giving him a good gift to help him. Verse 14, Then the anger of the Lord was kindled against Moses, and he said, Is there not Aaron, your brother, the Levite? I know that he can speak well. Behold, he is coming out to meet you, and when he sees you, he will be glad in his heart. There will be a joyful reunion, which is a gift of God's grace. God provides encouragement and help even to Moses as Moses is attempting to get out of this. And then he sets up this whole system of help for Moses in verses 15 and 16, where God will speak to Moses, Moses will be his mouthpiece, and then Aaron will be Moses' prophet or Moses' mouthpiece. Look at verse 15. You shall speak to him and put the words in his mouth, and I will be with your mouth and with his mouth and will teach you both what to do. He shall speak for you to the people, and he shall be your mouth, and you shall be as God to him. Here's the overall point of this whole passage, verses 10 all the way to verse 17. God, the all-powerful God, uses these two men. And he uses Moses in particular to accomplish his purposes. This is the type of God he is. This is what he does throughout the, the scriptures. And so you put these two foundational revelations together, right? The third and the fourth one. He powerfully rules over all And then he graciously uses us to accomplish his purposes. The all-powerful God of the universe uses weak and broken people to accomplish his purposes. 
I mean, that's amazing. He graciously involves us in what he's doing. He uses us. And I think this is motivating for our service to the Lord. This is life-giving. You and I don't have to have the power, the authority. We don't have to be rock stars. We shouldn't be. We don't have to have it all together. In fact, I would say that if you think you have it all together, if you think you're a rock star, if you think your gifts are awesome and that no one can replace you, no one can do it the way I do it, then God can't use you as he wants to. I would say scripturally the proper attitude is that God wants to use us in our weakness so that he will receive glory and he will receive honor. I mean, keep in mind the Apostle Paul and his perspective on all this. So to keep me from becoming conceited because of the surpassing greatness of the revelations, a thorn was given me in the flesh, a messenger of Satan to harass me, to keep me from becoming conceited. Three times I pleaded with the Lord about this, that it should leave me. But he said to me, my grace is sufficient for you, for my power is made perfect in weakness. Therefore, I will boast all the more gladly of my weaknesses, so that the power of Christ may rest upon me. For the sake of Christ, then, I am content with weaknesses, insults, hardships, persecutions, and calamities. For when I am weak, then I am strong. And so... Let me ask you, what area do you feel weak in right now? I mean, what area are you, are you feeling powerless, not strong enough? In what areas do you lack ability, right? Maybe, just maybe, those are the very areas where God wants to do his work in you and through you. I think we're very quick to adopt the cultural mindset that strength is always to be preferred to weakness. You gotta have the strong man. Strength, power, domination, authority is always to be preferred to humble dependence on another, whether it's a person or the Lord. And that cultural mindset, a worldly mindset, seeps into our lives and into the church. We begin to think we have to have it all together and we're proud and we're arrogant. And we begin to think that we have to solve things on our own and depend only on ourselves. And this passage is a a strong reminder to us that we have a strong and a powerful God And he delivers and he works by his sovereign power. And our response to that, to his sovereign power, is to trust him. Even in our weakness. Even in the thing in your life right now that is so hard and you feel absolutely like you cannot figure this out. Trust him with that. Trust him to work in the midst of that. Because that's exactly the point where he delights to work. He delights to use broken vessels to do amazing things. Because that is the type of God he is. And ultimately it brings him glory. Let's pray.
Father, we help us to recognize our weakness and help us to recognize how much we need you to humbly depend on you and on your power. Help us to recognize your authority over all and to rejoice in that and find our joy in that. And even when we are maligned, when we are put down, when we feel weak and powerless, when we have no options, when it feels out of control, all of that, Lord, is where you work. It's where you accomplish your purposes. It's where you change us and then where you send the gospel forth into the world, where you deliver your people. And so I pray that you would, you would help us to renew our minds with these truths so that we won't adopt the cultural disposition of strength over weakness, but instead we will rejoice in our weaknesses, rejoice in our difficulties so that you can be honored and glorified, so that your power can be expressed through us. That's our prayer and our desire, Lord. It's in Christ's name we pray. Amen. Thank you.